My name's Clover, and we need to talk about eco-anxiety. Some of you may be wondering what eco-anxiety even is, while others may be struggling with it right now. This podcast is for both of you. For those curious listeners who want to understand the impacts of climate change on our mental health, this podcast is your crash course. Each week on the show, we'll be exploring a different face of the climate crisis, from the food we eat, to our relationship with media, our addiction to fossil fuels, and everything in between. I'll be speaking to leading experts and global companies about challenges and solutions. You'll also hear from young people around the world who feel eco-anxious, and hear from our resident psychotherapist, Caroline Hickman, about how to navigate some of these feelings. And for those of you who feel eco-anxious right now, I'm here to tell you that you are not alone. And far from being a sign of weakness, your eco-anxiety is totally normal. In fact, it's a sign of your empathy, proof that you are awake to the issues. I believe that talking about our eco-anxiety is the first step to turning it into agency, community, and vision. So let's talk about eco-anxiety. On the previous episode, we faced nature and extinction, featuring Ashwarya Sridhar, conservationist, photographer and presenter, as well as Jennifer Morgan, executive director of Greenpeace International. We heard from our resident psychotherapist, Caroline Hickman, about the need to create space for eco-anxiety while cultivating our ecophilia, love and awe for nature. If you haven't already, be sure to check it out after this episode. So we've made it to the final episode of this journey into the climate crisis and the rise of eco-anxiety. I decided to end the season on education because I believe it's the key to solving the climate crisis. What we learn in the classroom, how we choose to navigate our feelings, and even how we re-educate people in existing positions of power. Growing up in Australia, I didn't learn about the climate crisis at school, nor did we talk about it at the dinner table. I turned to documentaries and social media instead, but back then I didn't have the support network to help me cope with the challenging feelings that came up or figure out my role in solving them. That was until I coerced my parents into moving to Indonesia so that I could study at the Green School, a tower of open air bamboo classrooms in the middle of the jungle. Unlike my Australian education, the Green School didn't ask me to pursue a convenient career, but asked me to focus on the problems I wanted to solve. In 2017, over 1.4 million young people walked out of school to protest climate inaction. They walked out of an education system that has failed to prepare them for the crises we've inherited, a system that failed our parents too. While we've seen the climate crisis become more and more ingrained in the public psyche with growing willingness to talk about the problems and their solutions, I don't believe we will solve the climate crisis until we support the emerging generation to become climate leaders. We are already a tremendous force for change. Young people today are more knowledgeable on all things sustainability and social justice than any generation prior. We want to work within companies that invest in a future that inspires us instead of setting us on a path to dystopia. And we're holding our parents accountable. 
While many of us are banner blazing in the street, few of us already hold seats of power where we can create change at an institutional level. However, this is not stopping us from disrupting these spaces. Indeed, time and time again, when I've asked business leaders why they're in the room talking to me about climate change, it isn't because of some IPCC report from the UN, but because their kid came home to them at the end of the day and asked, mom, dad, what are you doing about climate change? The question becomes, how do we build on this momentum and unleash the power of youth for change? What is the role of education in supporting my generation to turn our eco-anxiety into agency and for decision makers to turn apathy into action? Okay. Let's kick off today's episode. Later in the show, I'll speak to Leslie Medema, one of my long-term mentors and the head of curriculum at Green School International. Over to you, Joe. I'm Joe, I'm 18, and I am a campaigner at Teach the Future. The climate crisis is the greatest existential threat facing our generation. How is it currently being taught in schools? It's taught a bit in geography, which is an optional subject past like year eight or something, and a really, really little bit in science. So I actually took biology and chemistry at A-level, and you'd, you'd imagine that I should therefore have learned quite a lot about climate change, but I can only remember one lesson we talked about climate change, and because I didn't choose geography at GCSE, I then ended up learning pretty much nothing about climate change. I think I learned a bit like maybe in year seven, but the problem is even when we do learn it, sometimes we get incorrect information. There's a lack of resources and a lot of resources are outdated. And, and therefore, it's meant that the teaching that I have had on climate change has often actually been incorrect. Why did you start Teach the Future? What was your catalyst? I'm 18, so I've just finished my A-levels, which is like the highest level of mandatory kind of education in the UK. And problem is, despite all of that, I've been taught very little about climate change, which is a real problem because as an adult, I'm going to be experiencing the effects of climate change a lot and increasingly as I get older and older, but I'm not being prepared for those. So we're wanting quite a big change to the way that education works in the UK so that climate change is treated as a key principle throughout education. And what does that look like in practice? I think it's about making sure that climate change isn't perceived as just an issue for like people that are studying geography, but instead taught in all of our subjects. So for example, in DT, design technology, we might learn about like sustainable materials and given like sustainable design briefs. In history, we can learn about the history of the industrial revolution and, and expansion of fossil fuel usage. In sciences, we can understand about the science behind climate change. And in English, we can hear literature from people that have experienced the effects of climate change firsthand. And through doing that, we can get a really kind of well-rounded understanding of climate change and sustainability and then go on to understand how that's going to affect all parts of our lives and all parts of society. And hopefully whatever job we can go into, we can then make sure that we're aware of those things and contributing to a better future. How do you feel people within the education system are responding to this issue? You know, how do teachers feel about this lack of education? Essentially, teachers completely agree that there's currently not enough education on climate change and 75% of them feel they haven't received adequate training on teaching on climate change and that creates a real difficulty because what you don't want is teachers accidentally teaching about it incorrectly because they haven't received that training so one of our key asks in Teach the Future is for teachers to be given much better training on climate education so they can teach about it in a positive way with all the right knowledge and all the right skills rather than being forced to teach for something they don't have 
the knowledge on. Do you feel that this situation in the UK is reflective of education globally? I think so. I think it might be particularly bad in the UK. The new curriculum changes have tried to push out anything that's remotely political. And what that's meant is it's actually pushed out things which are societal and relate to society as well. And that includes climate change quite a lot. But I think this is probably happening across the world. And we've talked to people in loads of countries from Poland to Democratic Republic of Congo. And they're all saying their experience is similar things. I remember when I was 11 and first started watching documentaries that it was like having the rug pulled out from beneath me because up until that point, I'd kind of been floating along in this perfect nature bubble in Australia. And then suddenly I was learning about things like climate change and mass deforestation and the fact that, you know, even in my own lifetime, so many of these natural places had already been destroyed. And I was horrified at that reality, but maybe even more so that the people, the adults in my lives were so good at pretending that it wasn't happening. The fact that I didn't learn about it in my school, the fact that I didn't hear about it in media, I certainly didn't hear about it from politicians. What was it like for you as a student, as a young person, when you first learned about climate change and realized that you'd kind of had the veil pulled over your eyes? Yeah, it was a real shock. I remember it quite specifically because I was also watching a video. It was about droughts in Malawi. It was really like an upsetting video about this woman that was having to eat just corn husks just to survive. So like not even the edible part of corn because drought had affected her region. I remember it being really upsetting. And towards the end of the video, they said, and we think that climate change has made the drought much worse. And I was so shocked because I had genuinely no understanding that climate change was happening now. The way I'd been taught it had made it seem like it was some like far off thing for like generations in the future. I thought maybe it was something that my grandkids might have to deal with, but certainly not me and certainly not people now across the world. I, I was really shocked. I don't, I don't think that's the right way that you should discover these things. <laughs> I think that being suddenly told about this big scary event or scary things happening to the world just through like a 10 minute video shouldn't be the way it should be done. It shouldn't just come at you in a shock. It should be something that's slowly taught to you in a in a safer space rather than just you watching it online. But that's definitely not, not the right way you should learn about climate change. One of the reasons why it's so worrying to think about climate change not being taught in schools and young people kind of going to find their own sources of information is because there is so much misinformation out there and not just misinformation, but a really focused effort to control the narrative. And we've seen how a lot of companies have done that, where they really put the emphasis and responsibility on the individual rather than the kind of system that is perpetuating the climate crisis, right? And so do you feel that there has been a kind of behind the scenes effort to ensure that climate change stays out of the curriculum have you seen anything kind of shady going on we haven't necessarily but i'm i'm quite certain that there's an element of this happening because you know there are people that don't want people to educate on climate change frankly like fossil fuel executives want to do everything they can to protect their profits and if that means people not understanding the consequences of their actions and then continuing to use their products or people not understanding the consequences of their votes and continue to vote for people that fail to challenge fossil fuel companies then they're going to try and do everything they can to stop that in the uk i don't think the fossil fuel companies even need to lobby the government on this because they're so far behind anyway that they're doing the work for them already the government are so unwilling to change education in england it's it's really ridiculous how have you experienced that directly? Well, Teach the Future has been going for well over a year now, and we have done a lot of 
talking or attempts to talk to the government. We've written a huge amount of letters to the government. I think at one point it was like one every fortnight. And every single time we get the same response. It doesn't even like, the response doesn't even make sense. It doesn't consider our arguments at all. It's really easy to disprove, but they keep on doing it. And they really pay no attention to us in a way. Even though we've made considerable moves and people are definitely talking about climate change more. The government is repeatedly ignoring us and just shutting down instantly any discussion about changes to curriculum or changes to the way things are taught. And when you've spoken face to face to some of these decision makers and, and people who do actually have the power to create change, what have their biggest barriers been? You know, what are their kind of gut reactions? There's a huge amount of apathy, to be honest, like the amount of politicians who have said that, you know, is interesting, but I don't see it as very important or it's interesting, but it's not important enough to do. Right, it's interesting, but just not sure we're able to do this. But the problem is our asks are really, really reasonable. They really make sense and they're really necessary. And it's so incredibly infuriating to just be constantly have generally conservative politicians telling us that it's just not going to happen. And we're increasingly seeing that climate change is not just a threat to you know, our physical health or our livelihoods, it's increasingly a threat to our mental health as well. And this is something we've talked about before, you know, this rise of eco-anxiety. Is that eco-anxiety something that you've witnessed in the young people that you've been working with through Teach the Future? And is it something that you've experienced personally, Joe? It's definitely something I've seen quite a lot. Different people have different drivers for they get involved in activism. For me, it's mostly been hope, I think. I'm quite an optimistic person, just naturally, I always have been. And for me, it's more optimism for a better world that drives me to campaign, not fear of the worst world. But I've certainly seen people that are driven by that. And I've certainly experienced that as well. And I think it can be really easy to get burnt out when you care so much about climate change, when you're so concerned, particularly when you put a lot of work in and nothing comes out of it. That can be really daunting and really upsetting. I remember after the big climate strikes in 2019, during the days of that, we had like this huge feelings of like, wow, we've just done something incredible. It's the largest climate mobilization in history and we've just organized it. How amazing is that? But a couple of months after we kind of did a look back, I think we were heading towards an election in the UK and we were like, well, surely after what just happened, you know, biggest climate mobilization in history, absolutely huge event. Surely this is going to be the climate election, right? And what we saw was actually climate change was not a key concern. The leader of the Conservatives, who's now Prime Minister, didn't even turn up to the climate debate that we pushed for. And it just kind of felt like we've put all this work in, we've done so much, and we're still not getting somewhere. What more could we possibly do? And that can certainly feel really depressing and overwhelming. I can feel Joe's frustration, being part of this huge groundswell movement for change, only to have your hopes dashed when people in power sweep you aside. I want to hear from other young people about their experience of climate education and whether this has lessened or fueled their eco-anxiety. So. You know what's coming. I put out one final call to young people around the world, and here is what they had to say. My name is Anagha Rajesh. I come from this little southern state of India called Kerala. I'm 19 years old. The first time I experienced eco-anxiety was around 
ten years back when I was eight years old, for the first time in my life, I experienced a sort of crushing fear, a sense of powerlessness that was more than overwhelming. I believed that this sort of crushing fear would not have arisen had my educational system equipped me with the agency to deal with it. First of all, teachers need to be empathetic towards the feelings of students when we talk about environmental crisis. They should also be encouraging students to build the agency to tackle it. Rather than throwing facts and figures about global warming at students, we need to be really taught about how we can go into the crux of the matter and make a meaningful difference. When we are able to change the educational system, we are able to impact so many, so many youngsters who can then become agents of change. My name is Jude Daniel Smith. I'm 16 years old and I live in Sheffield, which is a city in the north of England in the United Kingdom. Me and people in my local area are very much threatened by the possibility of flooding. It's a massive issue where I live and people die year on year. I've seen my friends be displaced from their homes. It's heartbreaking to see that because I know that this is getting worse and worse every year due to climate change. There is that sort of ignorance is bliss attitude. You know, this is not going to affect us for years. Why should we care? I think that that is due to a severe lack of, of climate education. I've skimmed over the topic of climate change in geography and chemistry. So climate change is siloed into different subjects in the UK and I imagine it is in many other countries. And one big thing that comes from that is a very much overwhelming sense of climate anxiety simply because you know we worry that if we haven't received that education that climate education we've had to find that for ourselves and you know we've only been able to do that due to our relatively privileged backgrounds then you know there are going to be so many people who do not have access to resources to give themselves those tools and they will be left in the dark about the most critical issue this world has ever seen. My name is Hodo Inyangorok. I am a 37-year-old Nigerian environmental scientist who is passionate about environmental education for children. Climate change is a major concern for us in Africa and Nigeria in particular. We have had a share of extreme weathers. A few weeks ago, we experienced a period of heat waves and we had to have frequent baths and drink lots of water to keep hydrated all day. Then all of a sudden, and as I record this audio, we are dealing with heavy floods. Eco-anxiety is something that every environment-concerned individual may experience. I live in a coastal city in Nigeria that lies along the coastline of the Atlantic Ocean. I wake up and I fear what will happen to our homes when sea levels keep rising at these unprecedented rates. In Nigeria, UNICEF has reported that 10.5 million children are not in school. This is the whole summary of the education situation in my country. If children do not have access to basic education, then their hope for environmental education is still far-fetched. They need to know about waste and waste management. They need to know about energy, fossil fuels. They need to know about water scarcity, biodiversity conservation, plastic pollution, and many other environmental issues. These are issues that may affect their existence on Earth in the nearest future, and every one of them can play a role in preserving and sustaining the planet they live on. My name is Vida, and I'm 19 years old, and I'm originally from Canada. Just having been a witness to climate change and the impacts of climate change phenomena on my hometown and where I grew up, that had a huge impact on me. 
it's not supposed to be super hot in December and it's not supposed to snow in the summer. So it makes me feel very destabilized just because I know that something is not right and I don't know how to fix it. I would say that education does sometimes make me feel eco-anxious just because it lacks a very crucial component and that is the action part. You know, it has that first part of information and informative elements and then the second part of building empathy or sympathy with the planet but I find that oftentimes there's a lack of that third part, which is action. Where do students go from here? You know, after intaking all this information, what are we supposed to do now? We've just heard from young people around the world speak to how their education has failed to teach them about climate change and what it was like to wake up to this. I've reached out to Caroline Hickman one last time to help us navigate what we've just heard. As a reminder, Caroline is a psychotherapist from the University of Bath, who has spent years researching children and young people's relationships with nature, as well as our feelings about the climate and ecological crisis. Caroline, over to you. So you've got this really interesting group of young people here trying to make sense of what's not right for them and struggling with powerful, confused feelings. They believed the world would be one way and then suddenly they get this information in a class and they feel completely disillusioned at the end of it. That the story they've been given about the world and the climate and flooding and all of these things that are somehow compartmentalised and normalised. There's a disillusionment as they realise climate change is happening now. One of them said that that really clearly and nothing's being done about this but it's being taught in this normalized science geography based way that doesn't then support them to either make sense of their feelings about this or to bring it into the here and now we've got to face the reality of the change first and then we can address it then we can adapt to it then we can respond to it so there needs to be an absolute acknowledgement from education about the reality we're facing and then an adjustment to face that reality and then, you know, think about the educational needs of children for the future. And are you willing to change the curriculum to meet that? Because it needs to be changed radically. It doesn't need to just be tinkered with around the edges, not just bringing in specific classes, but actually embedding this across the curriculum. This isn't an add-on. This is about going down to the origins and the roots of our education system and radically transforming it. Anything else will fall short. I spoke a couple of years ago with a group of young people here in Bath who were all engaged around climate about education and I asked them I said what do you need from education for the future and they told me things like they said well we need lessons in which plants we can eat how to grow vegetables how to build boats how to take care of ourselves physically and practically alongside the maths the English the languages they said we need lessons in these things and that will help us develop that sense of agency that we can engage with what's happening but they also said, we want lessons in how to have difficult conversations with our parents about this. They also said, we want lessons in how to lobby politicians. So those should be the kind of lessons we're teaching. We should be teaching lessons about mental health, resilience, about how to have difficult conversations alongside the traditional education, alongside the impact of climate and biodiversity crisis. That would prepare young people for the future. Carolyn, sometime last year, you 
mentioned something incredibly shocking around how the education minister was responding to eco-anxiety and the solution that they were championing of here's how we fix young people's feelings. Could you share what that was? Yes, I can. This was a member of parliament in the UK who tabled a motion in parliament to ban teachers from talking with children in schools about climate change. So this was this particular individual MP's solution to the problem. It was framed as children are finding out about climate change. They're being taught about it in schools. That is scaring children. That is making them anxious. Therefore, to stop them feeling anxious, we should stop educating them about it. We should stop talking to them about it genius, as opposed to the opposite, which is we should find better ways to talk to them about it, better ways to educate children about it, and actually start to address the crisis of the climate emergency, and that would reduce children's anxiety. As Caroline highlighted, so much of our eco-anxiety stems from the fact that the climate emergency is not being treated like one. I've experienced this disillusionment shared by Joe and other young people, which comes with the realization that school, the very thing that's supposed to prepare us for the future, could not have done a worse job at keeping us in the dark. For our final interview, I want to speak to someone who models what an alternative education system could look like. One where we prepare young people for the crises defining us and empower them to become custodians of a future by their own design. I could not think of a better person than Leslie Medema, head of curriculum at Green School International and someone I look up to for answers when the world feels a little too messy. Here she is. My name is Leslie Medema. I was for many years the head of high school and guidance counselor at Green School Bali in Indonesia. And then in 2019, I left to help open other green schools around the world as we began to expand and bring this model of education to other children. What was your catalyst for getting into education? It came from the fact that I love learning and I'm not that kind of teacher who thinks that they actually know very much. And it's a matter of actually, if you want to continue to grow and develop and be a better person, you have to keep learning. I really believe in that. So that was the catalyst. When you joined Green School, what was the vision that you set out to achieve? Green School Bali was really founded on the simple notion of imagine the world your grandchildren will inherit and wanting us to create community and mindsets in our community with that in mind to stop this short-term individualistic view of the world. And with that mindset, we would be able to address better the climate crisis. To that end, however, the curriculum and the programming developed very organically. And I would say that it's a confluence of three circles. One is your community and how you engage your community in being part of the learning process and being active learners themselves. Part of it is your environment. How do you create an environment that children love to be in, that's connected to nature, that allows for learning in all different contexts, outside of the classroom especially, and your learning program. One that prepares you for the real world, where learning is interconnected. Learning is messy. Learning is about relationships. Learning is about big skills, problem solving, systems thinking, creative thinking, adaptability, being able to reflect. And really, it was teachers and students that created this 
curriculum. And so I hope when you come on, you feel that innovative spirit, you feel that joyfulness, you feel a seriousness too about the responsibility we all have and that you feel that nature isn't very far away from you. So these are all the goals of being in the school. But you still have to learn math and English. So yeah, it's quite a mix. I call it apple picking in a way from many different trees of brilliant educational and learning ideas around the world. And we got to pick the best ones and put them all in a basket together. It's a really impressive mission that you set out with, but what were some of your biggest barriers, Leslie, to actually realizing that? A couple of years ago, we realized students' desire to be involved in some of the climate activism activities had started to wane a little bit. And really the reason was it just became overwhelming. The anxiety just got really high and we had moved really far into that space and needed to go back to balance that out with just remembering putting your two bare feet on the ground and walking and loving nature that you're in. Because we were walking around with students and the students were only seeing the incredible amount of pollution and plastic. So that is a barrier, finding that balance. And that balance, again, is really different for different people. But there are other things too. You then at some point get really scared that the rest of the world's not going to see or appreciate this type of learning that you did and that you can't express it to them in the way that they understand. That's a big barrier as an educator and as a parent, especially for really progressive parents, kind of fine and really exciting this type of education until maybe about year 11. And then you get nervous. Did I hurt my child's chances of having all the opportunities around the world? And this is, of course, in very privileged situations. And then in other situations where students are having access to education, maybe for the first time in their family's history, going through the more traditional route is a good thing and being good at that because that does get them into the higher education and gets them into a different socioeconomic opportunity. And so following those rules and having those rules is really nice and really comforting. And so it's a very complex situation. And those are the barriers too, because you can um, get really mad about the current education system. It's terribly damaging. And you can also see where it provides opportunity. How is this current education system failing to prepare young people to respond to challenges like the climate crisis? A lot of people break it down to the old days of the industrialization and wanting to create people who can really work in that economy. And that's definitely true. But for me, it has more to do with how education is prioritizing individualization, prioritizing how good they are at an exam, how smart they are in this traditional way. And to me, that individualization is missing a huge part of community. The schools used to sit at the heart of a community and used to be a big part of helping students and parents come together to accomplish goals for that community. And that's what really has shifted in my mind as to how is my individual child doing and how am I as a child doing? And that's a problem. And that's a big problem in the climate crisis because the climate crisis impacts us as a society, as a global society. It comes back to mindset. And that's really what we're trying to do in education is to open up mindsets for young people to see how impactful they can be as part of a community, not that they themselves singular will save the world. That's really what we prioritize in education. Have you seen an increase in anxiety in the time that you've been working in education? I've been working in education about 20 years and I've seen issues the entire time. And it's the thing that we talk about the most in staff meetings. It's the thing we talk about the most in meetings with parents is really 
not necessarily about academic achievement, but it's about well-being. Do you think that the source of anxiety has changed over that time? Do you think young people today are more anxious about the climate crisis or some of these challenges that can feel so overwhelming as a young person? 100%. Because the biggest concern when we were in high school was really, are we going to get a good job and be able to support ourselves? That was our big concern. Whereas now, yes, absolutely, there's great concern for societal well-being. There's great concern around the climate crisis. There's great concern around aging parents and whether or not I want to have children in this world because of all of those things. And that is a very different shift from the younger days. In some ways, I've actually seen an improvement because students feel like they have more choice. And it really is about choice and control over your own education in your own lives. So in some ways, eco-anxiety and all of that is very real. But in other ways, students are taking back that feeling and doing something about it. So there's these elements that I see that are improving. What was your reaction when you first learned about the youth strikes for climate and young people actually rejecting their schooling experience to go out and banner blaze in the streets? I'm not going to lie. As an educator, you get defensive a little bit just because you work really hard. And most educators are just so passionate about young people and about learning. And you try so hard to make it worthwhile and you put your heart and soul into it. And so when it's rejected, you feel sad, you feel defensive, you have all these feelings actually. But then if you step back and really think about it, you have to actually realize that again, you're part of a community and the community you're serving is telling you something. And oftentimes they tell you this in a really respectful, thoughtful, very intelligent way. And sometimes they don't, but it's actually has nothing to do with that. It's about stepping back and going, okay, we're collaborators in this learning journey. So what can we learn from each other? And if you do that and don't have that old school stand above, I know all mentality, then it's incredibly fun because you're suddenly able to really serve people better. And so you actually feel better as an educator once you let that barrier down. Education is often the place for progressive thought. So a lot of your educators are the same in their heart. And sometimes they need the push. They need the youth leaders to bring them out and give them the confidence to march. And so when they do do that together, that's very, very profound. One thing could not be more clear. People are desperate to learn about the climate crisis, not in a way that tinkers around the edges or talks about it in purely scientific terms, but in a way that goes to the root of the crisis and holds the key to the solution, what it means to be human. Over the course of this season, a theme that has surfaced time and time again is that the climate crisis is intersectional. To Rob's point in episode four, this is an everything issue. It encompasses all the problems we've now journeyed through, from food to fashion and energy to feminism, social justice, and how we talk about these things. The climate crisis is a crisis of politics and the economy, but also culture, mental well-being, and what we choose to value as a society. The climate crisis should be taught and talked about in all this depth, color, and complexity. It should be talked about through the lens of our emotions, not in spite of them. The angst, frustration, and sadness, as well as the awe, joy, and connection. 
It is this full palette of emotions that makes us human. Pretending that we're anything other than complex, contradictory, conflicted creatures is erroneous and serves as an enormous barrier to mobilizing mass climate action. Leslie spoke to how she's witnessed young people shut down and not even want to engage in climate issues because their eco-anxiety has become too great. This reinforces the idea that we can't stop at teaching about the crisis. We need to think deeply about how to create space for our feelings and how learning is the foundation for empowerment, not paralysis. As Isaiah mentioned, everyone's experience of climate change is different. So too is their eco-anxiety and in turn, the approach for cultivating resilience and agency. Over the course of producing this show, I observed that every person I spoke to, from young people to experts to business leaders, have experienced eco-anxiety. What sets people apart is how they choose to respond to those feelings. Bury them under the rug, distract themselves, stew in them, or recognize the power of that eco-anxiety and use it to motivate action. No one can tell you how to feel or what you should do with your feelings. That can only come from you. What has helped me personally and many of our students at Force of Nature is threefold. First, start communicating with yourself about how you feel and how you feel about those feelings. Second, talk to others and connect with them through the common language of emotion. And third, observe the stories you ascribe to your feelings and decide which of those stories either empower or disempower you. What I'm really talking about here is mindset. The thing Leslie talked about, any change we wish to create in the world out there must begin in here. I'm pointing at my heart. <laughs> Your mindset is a collection of beliefs, ideas, and attitudes. It's what you choose to do with that eco-anxiety when it rises to the surface. I can think about my own mindset through the lens of the stories I hold to be true. And if I reflect on what those stories were when I felt really powerless, they sound something like, I'm just one in 7.8 billion people. I'm not smart or expert enough to make a difference. The system is too broken to change. These kinds of stories keep us stuck. Rewriting them is the most powerful thing any one of us can do for the planet and for ourselves. At the age of 11, I declared myself an environmentalist and I've been writing and rewriting my story ever since. Today, it sounds something like this. I'm Clover, a 22-year-old climate activist. I'm eco-anxious, and I recognize that while these feelings can be difficult, they aren't a weakness. In fact, these feelings are proof of how deeply I care, and that is my superpower. I want to be able to look back on my life and know I did everything in my power to use those feelings as a force for good. I wielded every shred of energy, privilege, knowledge, and resource to help others step up rather than shut down. I didn't become a spectator to the world's problems, no matter matter how complex or overwhelming they seemed. Instead, I chose to be someone who did something to fix them. I hope that by sharing my story and all of the stories in this podcast, I can provide some inspiration or ideas for how you can manage your eco-anxiety, maybe even see it differently. Now, I'm sad to be leaving you and I wish I could go on making these, but for now, I want to say thank you for listening, goodbye, and good luck. 
how did today's episode make you feel? Let us know by heading over to Force of Nature's Instagram at forceofnature.xyz and dropping us a comment or DM. As a reminder, if you are struggling with your mental health in the face of the climate crisis, or you're feeling particularly overwhelmed by your eco-anxiety, you can find a whole host of resources to support you at forceofnature.xyz forward slash podcast. The Force of Nature podcast is brought to you by Force of Nature and the awesome production team at One Fine Play.